0: Welcome to episode 26 of Lime Ninja Radio. I am your host, McKay Rippey. And with me in the studio is Aurora.
1: Hello, everybody.
0: She's our producer. And Aurora, this is episode 26, which means if it were hump day, we'd be on hump day for the year.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're half we're halfway through the year now. Well, let me rephrase. We've been doing this for six months now.
0: We have been doing this for six months. We should pop a champagne cork or something. Yep. Uh, Can't do it. No. So, And how was your Christmas?
1: It was pretty good. I got lots of cool new tools, including a set of sawhorses. A set of (laughs) (laughs) sawhorses. Yeah. That's the highlight of my Christmas. I got tools.
0: All right. (laughs) That's great. And also, I just want to mention that we had a great time with our two-hour slot on the blanket fort party. I hope we're invited back next year. It was a lot of fun chatting with some uh, and getting to know some new people.
1: Yeah, and I got to show off my cats.
0: (laughs) Yes, we did have a cat show and tell.
1: Yes, we did.
0: All right. Today's guest is Holly Ahern. And why don't you tell us a little bit about Dr. Ahern, Aurora?
1: All right. Holly Ahern is an associate professor of microbiology at SUNY Adirondack, who runs an undergraduate research lab. She first encountered Lyme disease when her daughter, a highly ranked competitive swimmer, became ill with a weird set of symptoms in her senior year of high school. When Holly found out that her daughter's mysterious illness was Lyme disease, she quickly immersed herself in the subject. She soon learned about the controversies swirling around the disease and came to realize that many others were suffering like her daughter. Ahern has become an advocate for developing a broader understanding of Lyme disease, one aimed at treating the chronic symptoms commonly reported by patients who were misdiagnosed or received inadequate treatment in in the disease's early stages. Her goal is to change the official CDC case definition of Lyme disease, which could attract more attention and funding for the disease.
0: Thanks, Aurora. And here's the interview with Dr. Holly Ahern. Dr. Ahern, it's McKay Rippey.
2: Hi, McKay. How are you?
0: Very well, thank you.
2: So you're my neighbor, almost with a few <laughs> hundred miles in between.
0: <laughs> th- th- throughway neighbors, <laughs>
2: <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> so, where, which campus are you on?
2: Uh, SUNY Adirondack, which is in Queensbury.
0: It's in Queensbury. Okay.
2: Yeah, so I'm up the not only down the thruway, but up the northway,
0: and up the northway a bit. Yeah, I was. Um, on the website, and it had also Paul Smith College on the website, so they're that's, out.
2: That's that's a little further.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> like a lot further, actually. Oh,
0: terrific! We had so in the springtime. I'm an assistant coach with the Hamilton College women's lacrosse team, and we had a player a few years ago is from Queensbury. Oh, so we we had a few uh, team dinners at her place when we were up playing Union and. Oh, and uh, Skidmore.
2: Yeah, we travel yep. a
0: little extra to
2: get up there. Well, it's um, it's nice up here, and it's I love actually I I love the Hamilton campus. My daughter, as you probably know, is a swimmer, and um, she, because she swam for Union, Union and Hamilton always had a swim meet, and uh, it was it's a nice trip, and it's just a really pretty campus. It
0: it is beautiful, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it, it is.
0: They they spend a lot of time and effort. Uh, on that, my wife for and I think she still is was on their arboretum board.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: she works up there, and their budget for mulch for a year is over a hundred thousand dollars.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's nice. No wonder it looks great. Ex-
0: yeah, no, they put they really put a lot of time, energy, and effort, uh, uh, including cleaning up the beer cans.
2: <laughs> right.
0: So let's talk ticks and Lyme and tests and CDC and whatever else we can squeeze in a half hour.
2: Some of my favorite topics.
0: I I see that. You're quite the activist.
2: Well, I I really don't, uh, you know, I I don't like to be considered an activist. I would like action, which I guess makes me an activist, but, um, you know, what do you
0: consider (laughs) yourself?
2: I don't know. An advocate? I'm not really sure. I consider myself a mom yeah. and somebody who realizes that this is a, a, a huge issue and a mess, and somebody has to do something. So, and I'm not alone. Certainly, there are a lot of other people that are doing the same. And, I, and now we're finally coming together, and I think that nice. we're making a difference. So. And I, so I guess that makes me an activist. I don't know. <laughs>
0: well, maybe, maybe a friendlier f- a phrase would be, uh, you're an educator at heart. Yes.
2: Yes. That's it. That's because I, that's what I do for a living. I said, I can do this beyond the classroom and see if I can't make a difference. And so that's, that's what I, why I do what I do. Nobody should have to go through what our family went through. And, uh, and you know there's millions of other families that are going through it so
0: now depending on who you talk to this is an unseri- uh an unfortunate series of events or a conspiracy or just corporate greed what what's your take on why things are so stuck
2: i think it's a perfect storm uh with elements of all of the above in it and I, again, I don't like to use the term conspiracy because I don't really think it was an insidious uh, event that anybody was evil and wanted to harm people. Uh, but that's how it turned out, and it turned out because of the Flawed way in which the, you know, right now we're moving into this realm of, I I guess we've moved there, evidence based medicine. Yeah. And as a result, you have to have evidence. And much of that evidence comes from clinical trials, uh, because that seems to be the only acceptable evidence if you're going to have evidence based medicine. And unfortunately for Lyme disease, because it was considered sort of this orphan disease that only people in the Northeast got. There wasn't a lot of time and attention. And so the core group of researchers that started working on this uh, have become the only voice um, for Lyme disease. And they are about half right as to what Lyme disease is with, you know, in terms of it can cause an acute type of infectious disease, but it can also cause a chronic form of infectious disease. And microbiology research and research done in animals is clearly showing that so this is a case where the microbiology (laughs) is ahead and medicine hasn't caught up yet but unfortunately you have these very loud voices on the other side saying no this isn't you know this isn't Lyme disease these people are just crazy which is that is evil
0: (laughs) (laughs) well that's but that's human nature yeah. And I mean, the medical profession has been dragging its feet and protesting from the days of hand washing.
2: Yep. This is true.
0: You know, so in my mind, I, I'm I'm with you that it's a perfect storm. And yes, there are ingredients that that look like uh, conspiracies and so forth. But I, th- I think it, a lot of it is just human nature in groups and you know, egos and yeah, maybe money and maybe patents and all this other stuff. But uh People can be stubborn just over ideas.
2: Right. And medical thinking evolves. I think history has shown that clearly. You know, when everybody had lots of bad ideas, it turned out to be absolutely incorrect. <laughs> and we move on to the next
1: bad yes. theory, you yes. know. So
2: it evolves. And you hope that the leaders in the evolutionary process are really have everybody's best interests at heart and not just their own. However, in this case, I think that now, that's changing, but I think that at least initially it was not. So
0: Yeah, well, it, it could be five years. It could be 50 years. Right. Yeah.
2: But, you know, it's time. Uh, it's time. It's too big of a problem to just pretend it's a little northeast issue. It's not. The CDC it, themselves have acknowledged that it is a large problem with an infectious disease. No other infectious disease is treated this way. So I really believe... And although HIV, you know, AIDS is caused by a virus, um, there are many similarities between what went on in the 80s with uh, AIDS and what is going on now with Lyme disease. And it has been going on for 25, 30 years. And that's why, all right, the evolutionary phase is over with. It's time for a change.
0: (laughs) Amen. Right. Without a doubt. So, one of the hangups here, and this gets into your specialty. One of the hangups, for sure, is this horribly uh, restricted and I'm just going to say inaccurate test. That's the gold standard by agreement, not because it works. How right. how do we how do we expand and allow other testing? I mean, they're even trying to ban the other testing. It's 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 crazy.
2: Yes, um, it is crazy, and part of it is crazy because there are probably things out there that are not helpful um, for Lyme disease. Some there has to be some level of regulation uh, because, like you said, it's human nature to see an opening and take advantage of that opening. So there, ha- there definitely has to be some form of regulation. But unfortunately, what the new regulations are doing is simply solidifying this really bad test as the only thing that physicians are going to be able to use to say if somebody has Lyme disease or does not and that is a major issue because as you know the test is this two-tier system of testing which by the way comes directly from HIV AIDS from you know the, the way that the HIV AIDS tests were set up back in the early 80s that this is uh, the same sort system and the, pro, the difference is the HIV AIDS tests work uh, most of the time and the, this test is bad and there's a multitude of reasons why but when you have a two-tier system and the first tier test misses 50% of the cases <laughs> those are 50% that will never get the chance for the slightly better test which is only 70% accurate right so that, uh, you know, needs to change. And I really believe that with the CDC coming out last August and saying that, well, you know, 10 times more cases is uh, 300,000 cases of lung disease, not right. 30,000. Uh, the the medical industry, you know, the, the research uh, pharmaceutical industries perked up their ears and sure. said, what? 300,000? now that is something we can put money market. toward, yep. right? And that's... That's what's going to lead the way, honestly.
0: I think the CDC has another zero in a closet somewhere.
2: Oh, well, that's because that's based on the diagnostic criteria that mandates that test, which is wrong half the time. So you can, at minimum, double that number, I suspect.
0: Oh, easily, right? Yeah.
2: Easily. And those are new cases. That's something else to consider. So that's new cases, and one-third of them don't ever really recover or don't recover within a 3 week period. Yeah, so, so. let's
0: let's talk about that a little bit is like what is it about Lyme and the co-infections that persist? Okay, so that's the first part of the question and the second part of the question is why are these kind of, – I'm going to call them low-grade even though they cause incredible suffering, but they don't kill you in a week like the flu does or some of these other horrible infections. It's like why are these low-grade infections kind of blind spot for medicine?
2: Wow, we only have a half an hour. I mean, <laughs>
0: okay, sorry. I just
2: spent most of the better part of a semester explaining this to my students, but that I'll do my best to sum it up in a really little <laughs> period of time.
0: I'd like to challenge you.
2: <laughs> okay, so the first, your first question was about what is different about these bacteria, right? Right. And from the period of time in uh, medical history referred to as the golden age of microbiology, which was when Robert Koch and Louis Pasteur uh, figured out ways to grow bacteria in culture and identify bacteria as causes of disease. That was really the late 1800s. Is
0: that the beginning of staining as well?
2: Yeah. All of the techniques that microbiologists, the the core microbiology techniques and the core practices when it comes to identifying pathogens Mm -hmm. comes from that period of time. And they were so good at what they did that essentially then antibiotics came along and so the idea was, well, we don't have to worry about bacteria because we have we've you know, cured the world of all bacteria diseases. Well, that was great in the fifties and then, and then in the seventies we realized that wasn't really the case. And so then we also realized that the model of infectious disease that is based on um the work done a long time ago is that all? Bacteria sort of have this frontal uh, attack approach. So, in other words, they are they're in your face. They they make you sick. They, you, know, you you are exposed to them. Their goal is to get inside you to reproduce as quickly as they possibly can, spread out as fast as they can. You know, sort of conquer the world approach. Right. And that leads to this very robust immune response. And you know, your immune system takes care of it most of the time, and then you know, you become immune to it, you get antibodies, and you don't have to worry about it so much next time, right? That is how infectious disease works, uh, or is supposed to work. And that's true for bacteria that have this sort of frontal approach. Mm-hmm. However, there are multitudes of bacteria that cannot be grown in a laboratory setting. So the tests that were are historically the gold standard for identifying bacteria culture tests and whatnot they can't be grown in a laboratory setting because they have different strategies they don't they aren't necessarily in your face pathogens they are stealthy and in fact uh, Stanley Falco at Stanford University refers to these types of bacteria as stealth pathogens they literally their their goal is to be your friend. They are symbionts. <laughs> they want to get inside your cells and hang out and, you know, have a nice time there. But unfortunately, you know, they've evolved with us for a very long period of time. Right. But unfortunately, sometimes they're they don't play so nice, which is true pretty much of all bacteria. And two strategies they have specifically are the ability to produce biofilms, which are literally communities of slime mm-hmm. that permit them to be resistant to antibiotics and survive adverse conditions. And the other one is intracellular growth. So in other words, these these are bacteria, not viruses, bacteria that invade cells and instead of being killed as a result, they survive there, they reproduce inside the cells.
0: That would be like Babesia, yeah?
2: That would be Babesia, that would be Bartonella, that would be Borrelia, which, you know, they they actually, it is pretty. It is more than abundantly clear that they produce a biofilm. That they grow in a biofilm. They are producing biofilms in joints. They are producing biofilms in the central nervous system. Um, unfortunately, you know, we know this from a microbiology perspective, and the medical implications of that have not been followed up on at all. Right. Which is, you know, one of the big problems with antibiotics. Right. Which is your other question, right? Why does in a short term dose of antibiotics uh, kill these people, or kill these people, <laughs> kill the bacteria. Now I think
0: of them as people, too.
2: <laughs> yeah, I can't help it, you know. They, and the answer is because they, they live in biofilms, they live intracellularly, and they have this ability to shut themselves off, which is something called a persister phenotype. So they, mm. 5% of the infecting cells will just automatically shut themselves down, right, and sit inside those cells for extended periods of time without doing anything. They're not metabolically active. They're just, you know, quiescent cells that can reactivate over time. And Uh, really the persister state enhances their survival of the um, population. So it's a very altruistic thing for them to do (laughs) if you stop to think about it, right? So one of them... One of them will, um, one out of five, right, will, will just shut themselves down and wait. So if the rest of the population gets killed with the antibiotics, then
0: still there's around. those
2: persisters that yes. can then reactivate and keep the population going. So here, and, uh,
0: this, this question may not have any, because that's, that's a brilliant answer, and uh, I've, I'm going to take the final exam for your course, because I, <laughs> I feel ready now.
2: All right, good. <laughs> I'm happy to hear that.
0: Uh, is is there a known trigger that for the reactivation of these uh, sleeper cells?
2: Yes, the answer is antibiotics. <laughs> ah,
0: so that's so, why the challenge test for the antibiotics works, huh?
2: Um, I think so. Uh, because essentially, what you know, the, the persister cells uh, stay there. Well, I shouldn't say uh, antibiotics triggers the formation of persister cells. Removal of the antibiotic triggers reactivation of the persister cells.
0: Uh, So that's why I'm interested in the reactivation. It's like where they go from the dormant state to the active state.
2: Right. So basically when Uh, the danger is removed, the threat to them is removed. They come back out. They pop their little heads out and say, okay, back to work. And then 5% of those new cells will go into the persister state. Sure. So it is a life cycle, and we need to break the life cycle. We cannot kill them all with antibiotics. That's not going to work.
0: Because, right, they go into this this dormant phase, this protective state. Now, you must know uh, Dr. Shopey and her work with the biofilms. Yes. Yeah. And I have, I just, this is a total aside, but it's fascinating. It's a real life biofilm story. I had this young man come in my office. I'm an acupuncturist. Mm -hmm. So he came in for chronic headaches in a consultation um is really d- debilitated by them um misses a lot of work and he was saying yeah i used to be sick all the time and then about a year and a half ago uh that all changed and now i'm healthy all the time i never get sick i don't have to take antibiotics every year i would even a couple years ago i had pneumonia and he's he's a fairly young man it's got it was an interesting history so we're you know he doesn't really get into it too much we kind of go back this up subject he said you know i have to tell you he kind of opens up a little bit he said so when I was sick about a year and a half ago for the last time, I was really nauseous and throwing up a lot. He said, and then I had this incredible sneeze, and I felt this – I thought it was blood, he said, coming out of my nose. And he said this entire cup full, like a mug full of biofilm – he didn't call it biofilm – came out of his sinuses. Yeah. Yeah, and he's been healthy since. So that's a great <laughs> – biofilm actual story. So he had a chronic sinus infection, probably who knows how long for years and years and years that was causing these recurrent infections and nobody could identify it and resisted that antibiotic treatment, so forth and so on. And he just got lucky and sneezed this thing out and he's been fine since.
2: Oh, Well, that's a great story, and I'm going to use that in my class.
0: Isn't that amazing? It's a true – I mean, it's secondhand, but it's a true story. It's crazy. He was was really scared. He actually went to the doctor because so much of the biofilm came out that he was afraid that he did something seriously wrong to his body or his brain or something. But just – anyway, biofilms are serious, serious stuff.
2: They are, and the good news is that is – increasingly recognized as a major medical concern. And so there are drugs in the pipeline that can disrupt biofilms, allowing antibiotics to, you know, the activity of antibiotics to be enhanced. And that's the next great thing that will come um, in the field of infectious disease medicine, I think.
0: Right. And right now we have (laughs) uh, different enzyme preparations that can help yeah. and uh, I know one of my favorite kind of backdoor ways inside the biofilm is uh, liposomal remedies that the biofilm colonies will take in as uh, sustenance, and then when they're broken apart, will deliver the the herbal antibiotic or the antibiotic itself. So there are strategies we have now, even before these things get to, the new drugs get to market.
2: Right, and but what's needed are people like you who will uh, apply those methods to see if people actually get better. But what would also be helpful would be clinical trials to yeah. you know, show or not show improvement. And in the world of medicine and the insurance reimbursement for these things, that's what's necessary. That's what's needed.
0: It so is. Unfortunately, that's not my area of expertise
2: and it's not going to happen because uh just to say bluntly nobody's going to make any money off of that right. uh so the, there's not going to be a pharmaceutical company that's going to jump on that bandwagon right well if they come up
0: with a pharmaceutical that works um, that's great
2: right you it know
0: is. that's great uh let's see i have a few questions i asked my listeners for some questions and uh one is from Debbie, actually, she has three questions, but I don't know if we'll get to all of them. And uh, Debbie asks, does the Borrelia bacterium persist beyond long-term antibiotics, I think you answered this, or other treatments, and what evidence supports that? And then she goes on to say, the CDC and the NIH have used biopsy and culture methods to look for Borrelia. Have you done any of this in the lab, and do you know why these tests aren't used clinically?
2: Okay, so the first part of that question was about persistence, yep, um, the Borrelia.
0: And we covered and that pretty well.
2: Yeah, they, uh, the bacteria themselves, I think it's pretty clear from NIH-funded research and research done in other countries on animals in particular that Borrelia persists. They survive antibiotics. Uh, they, they, too, show the persister phenotype that I was referring to and therefore they, they can survive antibiotics, and they can probably survive long-term antibiotics. So for some people, and the, the question is, what differentiates the people that uh, re- continue to have persisting symptoms from those that don't? And it would appear that there are host factors involved too. So sure. your immune system plays a role in it, as does the nature of the bacteria and the other piece to the puzzle, I think, is comorbidity or what, you know, people like to refer to as co-infection. What else is going on in the background of the patient? Is there another infection going on? Is there a viral infection that suppresses the immune system like the Epstein-Barr virus? Right. So these are all reasons, um, you know, and unfortunately in medicine, they're looking for cause and effect. Mm-hmm. Because of what you know, the success of the Golden Age, yes. so they're looking for this one thing causes that one disease, right. and in the case this, there are many chronic diseases, not just Lyme disease, that this does not apply to. That rule does not apply to. So I think it's changing. I'm hoping <laughs> that it's you know at least I, I will say I think I believe that the NIH and the CDC are finally doing what they needed to do, they, they're they providing the leadership necessary uh, to sort of think outside the box just a little bit to change, you know, not necessarily fund the same type of research studies over and over and over again right. um, to right. try to prove a point that they can't ever prove. You know, that's the <laughs> definition of insanity. Time, And I think that we're, I really believe we're at a point in time where we're at, the Acme, right? It's either going to go over the other side or, I don't know. Um,
0: Slide back for a while.
2: Right. But I think we're really approaching that peak where it's like, oh, yeah, this is a persisting infection that antibiotics won't kill, so we need more drugs. <laughs> right. and, well, look, that's I hope so. Within the next few years, by the way, <laughs> because <laughs> there's a lot of people that need this information now.
0: Uh, it's, it's awful how many people are suffering.
2: Right. And And I'm sorry, what was the second part of that question? Did uh, I answer it?
0: Why? So they're using some of these uh, culturing methods uh, in in your type of laboratory, and how come similar tests aren't used clinically?
2: Okay, because the bacteria don't hang out. These are blood tests typically. um, For the most part, you know, the idea is to take the blood and to put it into culture media and let it, you know, let the bacteria do the rest of the job. So that can be done and has been shown to be done with animals. But the reason is, particularly for Borrelia, the bacteria that is known as the cause of Lyme disease, Mm -hmm. the bacteria get out of the blood as quickly as they can. Um, So they go bind to collagen-containing tissues, which you know is every connected tissue in in your body. body. Uh, so, which is rich in the nervous system. It's also rich in the, um, you know, the musculoskeletal system. So that's where they go. They leave and go elsewhere. So, a, think about this when you take a a sample of blood. You're drawing five milliliters out of a total of how many milliliters of blood circulating?
0: (laughs) I I don't have that answer. It's a lot.
2: (laughs) I should know that, but I don't exactly. But yeah, so you're taking a drop of, literally what constitutes of one drop out of all of the different blood right. you know the blood cells that you have and trying to grow bacteria out of them it's like a needle in a haystack so sometimes you get a positive culture and sometimes you don't um, the other thing is in animals it is noted that you can have cultures um, sit for up to 10 months and then become positive really? because of this persister state okay. so at some point after 10 months it, you know, the, the other bacteria have run out of nutrients or whatever, and the bacteria will reactivate and they can be detected live spirochetes, not their DNA, right. live spirochetes. Right. Um, that was done in uh, studies of uh, macaque monkeys most recently, within the past year even. So, and, you know, the, the sort of mainstream reply is well, monkeys aren't humans. Oh, please. Right. But shouldn't those results be repeated in humans? Yes. Well, how hard would it be to. To organize a clinical trial to get humans to um, do
0: that. In okay. fact, the NIH just did that too. So. so, so here's I'm I'm distracted by by that comment that you made. And how come in science that they'll some say something like, "Well, it this worked in mice, and so therefore it's very promising that it's going to work in humans," as opposed to, "Oh no, you know, it that's only in monkeys and not humans." It's like what what's the politics and the thinking behind? being encouraged by some animal studies. And then if they want to disprove something, pushing it away, is that just an argument technique that microbiologists use?
2: No, don't blame us. It's not the <laughs> microbiologist in this case. Um, I, I got to say, I think we got this. Uh, it's the, it's the medical uh, okay. in this case, it's okay. the medical and the, um, so if it is, if we are able to, first of all, if the bacteria persist, then all those people that said they can't are now wrong, and uh, they're not going to be. They're they're not going to go quietly. Is uh, as <laughs> best I understand it at this point. So in other words, they've been saying that no, nope, this is an acute bacterial infection for the past thirty years, and although the past twenty have been controversial because we've known it is not a simple bacterial infection for the past twenty years. So, however, all of their blood tests then will be um, obsolete right. and they're still making money off of that. And okay. this culture method proves them wrong. So there's, that's where the resistance comes from. And like I said, it's not on the microbiology side. It's on the medical well, the side of this side. case. Okay. Yeah.
0: So- sorry. My apologies to your field. <laughs>
2: That's okay. We can take it. Okay,
0: good. That's right. You are a scientist, all right. Yes.
2: Uh,
0: And last question from PJ asks, is it as hard to detect co-infections as it is Borrelia with tests?
2: Yep, it is because uh, for the exact same reasons why Borrelia, although I have to say Borrelia is remarkable. And I'm saying that as a person who studies bacteria it is a, a marvel of evolution, and it is unique from most other types of bacteria. And I say that because they it has the largest genome of any known bacteria, largest in terms of it's spread out across multiple molecules of DNA. They, they get rid of DNA, and they accept DNA like, you know, you and I would, uh, you know, pass coffee back and forth. So they are remarkable. Now, the other bacteria are... Uh, the co infections are these growing, you know, a growing awareness of their stealth nature. They are intracellular pathogens, so Mm -hmm. that is their strategy. They go inside cells, they reproduce inside cells. Um, and so we, we, what we don't know about those, um, you know, our response to those types of bacteria will fill volumes of books in the future. Uh, veterinarians understand these diseases a little bit better. Uh, they look for them. They have tests for them. Those tests are not approved for use in humans. So there are veterinary tests for Bartonella, for example, that are highly accurate, but you can't get that same test uh, in New York state anyway to be done on a human. So there you have it. I mean, the same is true of anaplasma ehrlichia, which are types of bacteria that are called rickettsias. Um, mm-hmm. And they, that's, they subvert the immune response. They try to stop you from producing antibodies. Your immune system doesn't really know what to do with bacteria. that are hiding inside the, their own cells, right? So your immune system has all these cells going out there to try to kill these things. Right. The bacteria get inside the cells and hang out inside the cell. I mean, that's how do you deal with that if you're a macrophage, right? right. So it, right
0: without turning into autoimmune issue, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it's just this... They, you know, without a target, an exact target, the switch from innate immunity, which is inflammation, Mm -hmm. to making antibodies doesn't really occur all that well. And so, serological-based tests are not good for stealth infections. And eventually, that will become well-known and and accepted when other DNA-based approaches uh, are better, are perfected because they're available now, but they're not there's still work to be done there, mm-hmm. but at the moment, all we have are these serological tests, and they cause symptoms that are sort of vague, and you know, a physician is would not necessarily order those tests for that type of pathogen because it wouldn't be on the different on the list of diseases in the differential diagnosis necessarily. Although it should be, especially in New York State. With the level of tick-borne diseases we have here, it should be the first thing anybody thinks of when somebody presents with, you know, weird fatigue, flu-like symptoms, uh, you know, whatever.
0: Yeah, or just any unexplained symptom.
2: Yes, it should be the first thing on the list, all of those tick-borne diseases.
0: It's funny, once you pierce the veil and go through the other side, it's all of a sudden you're surrounded by... These, these stealth, we'll call them, go back to that, Stanford professor, the stealth pathogens. Right. I think it's really, uh, you know, it's not as dramatic as AIDS. It, it's, I think that's one of the issues uh, or, or something horrible like Ebola, so it doesn't capture the imagination as much, but it is really everywhere. It's yep. really everywhere. It is. Dr. Ahern, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, I want to leave with uh, an opening for you. Is there anything that you'd like to finish with that didn't get a chance to say that you want to communicate with people and or any websites or Facebook that you want to promote?
2: Well, we have a uh, a group here where I'm a co-founder of our small group, the Lime Action Network. Uh, we are getting larger as um, – you know, the word gets out, and we have aligned ourselves with a group called the New York State Coalition on Tick-Borne Diseases, which uh, I guess that's where the activism comes in, because we are working to try to get the New York State law uh, that is right now, as we speak, sitting on Governor Cuomo's desk. It needs to be signed Still. or not signed by the 17th.
0: What's, yep. what's the holdup?
2: Uh, the governor doesn't have a pen, apparently.
0: <laughs> that would you be a great camp- that would be a great campaign to send him green pens.
2: To mail him pens, yes, yes. it would. Uh, apparently, there are concerns over the wording uh, of just like two or three words, as, in terms of how broad or narrow it makes a bill. I understand there are negotiations going on between the bill sponsors and the governor. We, of course, have no. Um, Insight into what's going on at all, so we're just all sitting around biting our fingernails.
0: Yes, your state is not transparent.
2: No, and you know that the clock is ticking. So, if anybody, any of your listeners, feel so inclined to call or write to the governor's office and ask him to please just sign that bill, uh, that would be great. So the New York State Coalition, um, you know, we, we're also working with uh, the downstate, the Hudson Valley Congressman, Congressman Chris Gibson, and um, also Sean Maloney, who is the, uh, a, a Republican and a Democrat. I mean, it doesn't get any more bipartisan than that, uh, to also pass a federal bill related to uh, forming a task group, you know, a, a working group to reevaluate the science. Of Lyme disease. So in other words, the science, you know, obviously what has been the message for 20 years isn't working. So let's go back and look at all the science and uh, see if we can't come up, if something new doesn't come out of that. And for the first time, the reason why that bill is important is because for the first time, patients, patient advocates, and outside voices are going to be a lot at the table. So it isn't going to be a one-sided, biased, view anymore. Um, they're going to have to address this new research coming in and come up with ways to to address the things we know about the bacteria. So, so. that's why that one's important, too.
0: Good. Well, the community is getting more politically savvy, it sounds like.
2: Yeah, it's weird. <laughs>
0: <laughs> We're learning.
2: Uh-huh. We are. All
0: right. Thanks so much.
2: You bet. It's good to talk to you. Likewise. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I love that interview.
0: Yeah, Dr. Ahern's fantastic, isn't she? She really gives a great overview of the current state of research with Lyme disease and particularly uh, what's coming down the pipeline in terms of being able to battle Lyme disease. I really enjoyed that part of the interview.
1: Yeah, and it's also good to hear how um, the research that's being done for Lyme disease can affect the the larger infectious disease research as well.
0: Absolutely. We're definitely, in some ways, the tip of the spear on some of these chronic, low-grade infections. I think it's going to have a big impact in health in general over the years.
1: Yeah.
0: All righty. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully, yes. So if you have feedback about this episode or any of the others, please send us an email.
1: At feedback at LymeNinjaRadio.com.
0: Please like us on Facebook. We're over 600 likes. I love that. Keep them coming. Yep.
1: You can also visit our website for links and show notes. That's limeninja.radio.com.
0: Yes. And if you don't want to miss an episode, the easiest way to subscribe on iTunes
1: or Stitcher
0: and check back with us next week. We have an interview with Dr. Nicola Ducharme. She's a naturopath out in California and really has a great holistic way of integrating antibiotics and herbal therapies. Uh, it's a really wonderful interview. And last thing we have to do is the Lime Ninja fact of the day.
1: Part of a ninja's training is to count to infinity twice. <laughs>